I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson, and in a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Tilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, B. Lund, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, television producer Natasha Lance Rogoff joins us to discuss her new book, Muppets in Moscow, the unexpected crazy true story of making Sesame Street in Russia. In the aftermath of the Soviet Union's collapse, Natasha, with the blessing of congressional figures and USAID, went to Russia to help with the creation of the Russian version of Sesame Street, which it was believed would help spread Western liberal values to the newly de-Sovietized country. Making the show, however, was no cakewalk, as cultural clashes ensued, as well as other difficulties. Despite all of that, The show did make it to air, and it lasted from 1996 to 2007 in its original run. This is the story of how that show came to be and the lessons Natasha learned from making it. So with all that in mind, let's get right to it with Natasha Lance Rogoff, author of Muppets in Moscow. The Unexpected Crazy True Story of Making Sesame Street in Russia. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I'm very excited to be speaking with. She has a a rather wild book that's out, uh, Muppets in Moscow, and I have it pulled up right now. The subtitle is The Unexpected Crazy True Story of Making Sesame Street in Russia. How are you doing today? Great. Nice to speak with you, JG. So if you could, um, I'm sure there's people that don't even know that there was a 
Russian Sesame Street, at least here in the U.S., there may be people that are unfamiliar with that. Uh, but maybe you could get into your background and how you came to end up working on TV in Russian, specifically the Russian version of Sesame Street. Absolutely. I uh, Well, first of all, it was a complete accident. And uh, I had been living in uh, the Soviet Union in the 1980s and the uh, up, up until the 1990, making documentary films and TV news. Yeah, didn't um, you, um, not to interrupt you, but didn't you cover mm -hmm. uh, like the LGBT community and the sort of underground subcultures in, in Russia in the 80s? Yeah. I did. Yeah. I made, I made a number of films. I think I wrote, well, I know I wrote uh, the, uh, one of the first uh, exposés about gay life behind the iron curtain for the San Francisco Chronicle in 1983. And, um, you know, from, from there I lived in Leningrad. So um, yeah, I lived there for, you know, well, total of 12 years in uh, the Soviet Union and then in Russia but had in, originally covered the whole breakup of the Soviet empire. You know, first there as a student, I was one of 30 American exchange students uh, living in Leningrad, which later became St. Petersburg. And uh, we were part of the cultural exchange. So while I was there, I, you know, met a lot of musicians, underground musicians, and um, many people from the LGBTQ but it wasn't called that then, uh, you know, in Russia. And uh, they were, uh, in, you know, very much persecuted by the communist regime. Um, there, you know, many of my friends were being blackmailed by the KGB to report on other people in the community. Um, so that was, you know, that was uh, what I was doing then. And then until the last couple of years of the Soviet Union, I made a film called Russia for Sale, The Rough Road to Capitalism. And that was an amazing experience because you couldn't even have predicted what happened. Um, but I followed a police chief in charge of economic crime who uh, went on after the Soviet uh, Union collapsed to run his own security business. <laughs> and then um, a steel worker who led the strike and the, that that strike occurred in the same location as the revolution of 1917. And that that film aired on uh, ABC News uh, Nightline, the night of the coup, because I had been embedding with communists who didn't want to see the empire collapse. And um, and then the film actually predicted the coup of 1991 which ended 70 years of communism. So then how, how did you get involved with um, Russian Sesame Street? Because it sounds like it took you off guard initially when you were um, offered it. You said, whoa, what, they're contacting me for this. Oh yeah, if you read, you know, in the book, I describe being approached by the, uh, you know, Big Bird executives and they had just watched my very dark film about Russia. And so I, you know, I, they asked me, could you help us bring Sesame Street to Russia? And I was like, did you just see my film? Because I don't really understand. <laughs> and uh, then he said, you know, uh, he was he was great. This was Gary Nell, who, you know, later became the CEO of uh, Sesame Sesame Street. And um, he said, you know, who who can say no to Elmo? You can't say no to Elmo. So eventually I, I said yes. And it was a fascinating 
project because you know the whole idea that the muppets would be you know ambassadors of idealistic values to model uh new ideas and uh and skills that would help children thrive in post communist society i mean this was you know i i i was in for this this was this was something that was extreme extremely ambitious and i i didn't really know if i could actually do it when i took the job but i was very excited about it so I, I know there Congress sort of was uh, got involved in this, and I think um, the U.S. Agency yeah, yes. for International Development as well gave grants to it. Could you talk a little bit about that aspect? I think even Biden yeah. comes up, right? Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, Senator Biden spearheaded uh, congressional appropriation funding for Russian Sesame Street, and uh, you know the the project had bipartisan support. So at that time, I mean, it's very difficult now to think about it, but. You know, at that time, there was a general collective feeling of uh, euphoria about the collapse of communism and the prospect of Russia and the former other uh, parts of what was the Soviet Union, like Ukraine and all these new independent countries joining the free world. So they were absolutely instrumental. USAID um, had a number of programs going on there, um, soft power uh, you know, supporting um, uh, idealistic values. So maybe we could talk, I, I want to get into some of the culture clashes that happened, but maybe we could talk about um, how the, the show first came together and maybe how did you come up with doing, um, you know, these new type of, of Muppet characters uh, for a Russian audience? I know there's uh, a, a few different ones like Zelaboba and and other ones like that. But how, how did you get the ideas for these sort of new Muppet characters for the Russian audience? Well, JG, very good pronunciation of one of the Slavic Muppet characters. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, initially the, when we first started, the biggest challenge was raising the financing for the show, the sponsorship, because USAID had appropriated funding, but only if we could match the funding with funding in Russia. So uh, we went through, uh, you know, pitching Big Bird and, uh, and uh, you know, the, the idea of creating new Slavic Muppets in a new neighborhood in the spirit of uh, post-Soviet culture and values. So it would look completely different. Uh, but our first, um, our, our first sponsor who agreed to support us uh, was nearly killed in a car bombing. And uh, I had been in that car about three weeks earlier negotiating the deal. So that was the end of the first, uh, you know, uh, attempt. And uh, we just kept going. I mean, even we did not raise the money for the show and we just kept producing it, which is, you know, rule number one when you're making television is or any production is do not start production unless you have raised the money. And we had not. So, um, but we kept going. And in the early discussions about the um, adaptation of, you know, this iconic American show, uh, I showed the, uh, my creative colleagues clips from Sesame Street and they really did not like the Muppets. So they said, you know, the head writer said, uh, you know, we want to use our own puppets. We have our own revered 
puppetry traditions dating back to the 16th century. And we don't need your Muppets. So, you know, but Sesame Street isn't really Sesame Street without the Muppets. <laughs> so, so I was a bit at a loss. But this debate, the Muppet debate, you know, causing almost an international crisis, it went on for months. And, you know, eventually uh, we um, we came to a um, an agreement, but but not until they had me meet their top puppet designer who pulled two puppets out of his uh, sacks. This was at the Russian TV station. And he starts uh, doing a performance and holding the Muppets up. And, you know, immediately one puppet says, I'm going to kill you and starts attacking the other puppet. And, you know, as I'm watching this, I'm, I'm just thinking, uh, you know, this, this puppet on puppet violence doesn't really feel very Sesame Street like. So that was our first experience. But ultimately, uh, this the uh, Russian creative team came to the U.S. They met the American puppeteers and, you know, Elmo and Cookie Monster and everybody. And um, they gradually, you know, saw through a series of experiences that I describe in the book how the Muppets and Sesame Street had impacted the United States and helped children so extensively. So they they decided to create their own um, Muppets, but in the tradition of their own folklore. And what that meant was, for instance, the large full body size puppet, who's like Big Bird in, in height and size, um, they wanted this puppet to be based on a character out of Russian folklore called uh, Domovoy, who's the spirit of the hearth in the home. And this puppet is depicted in Russian fairy tales like an old man, often with like kind of intense flashing eyes and not at all Muppet-like. I mean, most of the Muppets are like very childlike and playful. And this was this was a bit of an issue because they also wanted the character of their Muppet to be uh, tell children how to behave. And, you know, that was in line with a lot of Soviet education, which uh, generally uh, instructed children to be obedient. It was very different from American education. So through many discussions with the writers, the Russian writers, the Ukrainian writers, all the people together, eventually we decided that we that those Muppets should be child, more childlike. And this impetus came from some of the younger writers, you know, who were hoping to change stereotypes and encourage freedom of expression, encourage a little bit of mischievousness in order to experiment you know, and, and learn and play. Um, so these, the, the three puppets that were uh, created, Muppets were uh, Zeli Boba, the one you mentioned, who became an enormous, uh, taller than Big Bird uh, Muppet who resembles a hound and he's, he's blue and his coat has um, pieces of fur and, uh, and tufts of moss and leaves and twigs because he is of nature and he lives in a tree. 
So that's very Russian. So it sounds like th there were a lot of um, cultural clashes that would happen, and we can get into some of the specific ones, but it, in some ways I can understand uh, maybe some Russians feeling like, oh, do they want to denigrate our culture? Um, do, do these Americans want to denigrate our culture? So how did you maybe handle that? Because I don't think you really wanted to denigrate uh, some of the great um, achievements culturally that Russia has had. I mean, I think there's great authors that people like yourself and myself have read that come from Russia. And I, I think Absolutely. there are great cultural achievements. And I think you want to be sensitive to that. And you also don't want them to get the impression that it's about um, denigrating Russian culture, placing American culture is as superior to Russian culture. I don't think that was your intent, but I, I could see why maybe there, there were fears of that. So how did you walk that sort of tightrope um, with regards to uh, Russian sensitivities about their culture? I would say it was absolutely a learning process. It's not like I understood it, you know, right away. And in the beginning, uh, when, you know, for instance, the, um, the music director, the Russian music director, who was an accomplished composer and pianist, wanted only classical music in the show. Um, you know, I understood that because most of uh, animated uh, series, children's animation in the Soviet Union, which is beautiful. I mean, it's all hand-drawn cell animation, uh, you know, uh, world-renowned for the quality of the animation that's done. Uh, and most of that had classical music, you know, as the backdrop. So I understood where she was coming from. But on the other hand, I had also, uh, you know, come from and and had many friends who were musicians who had who had suffered a lot under communism. And the whole idea of this show and bringing the show to uh, the, the, a post-Soviet society was to create opportunities for independent expression. So, you know, if it was going to be all classical, you wouldn't, all the young people who had not been able to uh, uh, perform under communism, sell their music, um, you know, make tapes, because at that time it was, you know, audio tapes, um, they wouldn't they wouldn't be able to take part. And that didn't feel right. Um, but it was a long process working with this uh, music director where eventually she met a number of people, musicians that I knew, uh, and she found commonality with them herself. It wasn't something that I had to, uh, you know, like a hammer say, no, it has to be this way. The whole, uh, you know, approach to working in the country was to try to figure out a way for my um, my artistic colleagues to find um, new ways of seeing things on their own. Um, but but I would say also that, you know, one of the head writers said uh, it was a real challenge for them because um, they didn't really have a new shared culture. And what that meant was that, you know, it was difficult for them to create music, lyrics, and scripts where they were going to, uh, you know, riff on uh, popular culture as we do in Sesame Street. We have a shared, you know, a lot of the, the comedy comes from a shared popular culture. But they're 
their own popular culture had just been denigrated and collapsed, you know, eliminated uh, because the Soviet Union had had um, imploded. And this writer said, you know, we can't really make jokes about the Soviet past, the recent past, because it's too painful. It's too recent. But we also can't make jokes, shared jokes about our future because we don't have one yet. What is new Russia? What are our shared jokes? What is our shared culture? And that that was really poignant for me to understand that we were in this kind of limbo place where everything was being created anew, while at the same time, it had to reflect both Soviet history and further back, you know, pre-revolutionary Russian history. Yeah, in, in regards to the music, I love, um, I think it's a line on on page 102, uh, where you, you're trying to talk to um, one of these Russians about uh, the, the strength of Sesame Street. And you're saying, you know, we, we want to introduce children to diverse and innovative artists like Tom Waits, Marvin Gaye, and, and John Cage. Um, and I, I love that you mentioned those three, uh, in addition to these classical composers. So it sounds like you're, you're trying to bring together the best elements of, um, you know, Russian music with, you know, new elements and introducing people to uh, sort of a diversity culturally. Yeah, and also those the the Russian musicians and the Georgian musicians and Armenians, you know, a lot of what they were doing musically was mixing these elements. So you had rock musicians that were using um, ballads, you know, Russian uh, folk ballads, uh, lyrics from Russian folk ballads. You had uh, rock musicians that were using elements from Soviet army songs, you know, military uh, marches. And that was the idea that if we were going to create this new show, uh, you know, wouldn't it be better for it to represent uh, a new modern version of what Russia was going to become musically? And they did that. They did it beautifully. I mean, the music in the show, I mean, I wish there was a way to like have a CD in the book or like people could just, you know, click on it but um but it was just to hear it is you know you know if you hear the music you just can't get it out of your head it's so seductive could you talk a little bit about the i guess turbulence that russia was going through at the time because i mean it, it was suffering economically in a lot of ways after the fall of the soviet union there was a lot of um inequality which maybe explains some of the antipathy uh, that that some of the educators you talked with had towards capitalism. Maybe you could talk about just the issues Russia was going through to paint a picture of where things were at at that time. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, when when the Soviet Union collapsed, it was a state-run society, and it was it had a command economy. So everything there was no private property or uh, you know private ownership. Uh, there was no advertising at the time. Advertising didn't exist until after 1991. And so, so basically, uh, people had had relied on the state for everything. Um, the shops where they were selling milk, there weren't 16 different shops, you know, and and uh it was it would just said molako milk on the sign, you know, bread. And 
So when this system collapsed without um, something new in its place, and when I say something new, I mean a constitution, rule of law, um, a banking system that you know could serve all people, um, the medical system that you know that they had had, uh, you know, also was um, uh, very much disrupted. So this was a massive, massive uh, transition for the Soviet Union, which covers one seventh the Earth's surface. A, it's a you know millions of people, and poverty was extensive. Um, any any time you have you know the collapse of a government and the need to create a new society, you're going to have these extreme difficulties of economic uh, um, despair, um, violence, uh, power grabs in response to power power vacuums. So we came in our you know puppet team of Sesame Street, you know, we came into this environment hoping to create a new TV show with, you know, 400 uh, colleagues, artistic colleagues uh, from Russia and the rest of the former Soviet Union. Um, but it was a, a period of extreme humiliation as well for uh, the Soviet people because they were a superpower and the country had fallen apart. And I, I was going to say too. I, I think it's also like a a, a, a period of um, extreme uncertainty. You know, I, I know you have um, one of the teachers that you talked to while in Russia said, "Well, if we focus on money on in, in this show, you know, what what if our children end up paying attention to making money instead of focusing on being socially responsible people?" Uh, and I guess there, there's just a lot of uncertainty about the future and how how the culture is going to change. Maybe some of those are. Or even you know valid well, concerns. So it, it sounds like there's a lot of uncertainty driving maybe some of the fears in Russia at the time too. There was uncertainty, and also uh, you know not everybody was on board the the uh, capitalist ideology train. You know um, this was a country that had uh, you know been run completely differently from Western capitalist societies, and. You know, what they were seeing is at this time, you had a number of oligarchs and, you know, new entrepreneurs making a lot of money very fast, uh, but there really wasn't a middle class and people didn't quite understand how this was going to work, where they were going to fit and, you know, how were they going to feed their children and ensure their children's futures under this new capitalist system. So um, there was a very valid um, uh, concerns about what ideas we would be teaching in our TV show. And, um, you know, uh, what we did is work with the education experts in order to understand what they wanted to teach. So an example is, you know, in the beginning, when we had this curriculum seminar with the uh, experts, uh, children's education experts from around the former Soviet Union. And I had suggested, why don't we uh, have a scenario where we show children running a lemonade stand? And, you know, this was met with horror because 
under communism, the only people selling things on the street were mafia. So, you know, that was my own, that was early on where I, you know, was really not, not taking into account the historical experience that my colleagues had with the idea of business, uh, the idea of profit or children selling things in general. Out of curiosity, were there times where I know some sometimes the discussions would get heated and, and we'll get into that, but were there times where, you know, despite the cultural differences between the US and, you know, post-Soviet Russia at that time, were there times where you almost could see how the concerns or the debates that you were having in, in Russia with your colleagues there uh, maybe mirrored um, debates that we even have in the U.S. Absolutely. I mean, especially at that time. Uh, and, uh, um, you know, I ended up making a film later in uh, 2017 um, after Trump was elected, which was called What Russian Millennials or Russian millennials speak openly about America. And I put it up on YouTube. And within a couple of weeks, it had something like 2.5 million views. And it was all about that. It was all about, you know, the the uh, some of these questions related to capitalism, equality, um, diversity, um, gender identity, you know, all these kinds of things. And so there was there were always shades of that in what we were doing. I mean, I I actually didn't try to think about it that much because I was really based uh, you know, in Moscow most of the time and my my focus was on on the, you know, post-Soviet society. Um, but certainly I speak about that a little bit in the book and how um, you know, these ideas at that time it would have been battles with the neocons you know that's sort of would have been the parameters but even more so today that's why i feel the book has resonated so much uh you know with readers not only because of this horrific war and our need to understand uh the uh you know the 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 underlining reasons for uh for the emergence of putin as well as the ways in which people are limited to protest uh putin's regime understanding what it's like living there i was going to say too the the show actually lasts in in russia for you know a, a pretty fair amount of time i think up until Long time. Uh, putin i i think it was um somewhere at some point in putin's reign it ended right yeah i mean the 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 show uh started in 1996 and it aired for another 10 years so well into putin's era ending around you know 2010 and um it was a huge hit uh, you know across 11 time zones on Russia's two top TV stations. And there were only two TV stations at that time. And a few, you know, at least in the 1990s, there were a couple uh, smaller um, cable stations, but they didn't have cable the way we had cable in the US with Nickelodeon at that time. So one of the parts of the book that really stood out to me, and I don't know if, if if other people felt this way, but I was definitely touched by the 
um, part of the book discussing, uh, you know, how, how are we going to promote uh, inclusivity on Russian Sesame Street? And uh, you talk about this incident of watching a boy in a wheelchair. Uh, and, you know, I guess this boy meets a friend on his way to the park. and You know, they, they get together and whatnot. Um, and it's a sweet and touching statement, but I guess there's some pushback against it. And I want you to talk uh, maybe a little bit in depth about that story and some of the reactions uh, that people had about that statement. Well, I think the, um, you know, just to kind of recap what it was, is we showed a clip from the Sesame Street show and uh, it was the American show. And it had, a, as you say, a little boy in a wheelchair uh, flying a kite with a friend. And um, there's an upbeat song in the background, you know, me and my chair, we go everywhere. It's a very well-known segment. And when we showed this to the um, uh, education experts, uh, their first response was, this is incredibly exploitative to show children in wheelchairs on television. So, you know, I was surprised by this reaction. And then someone else, you know, asked kind of innocently, um, well, why would uh, normal children ever want to see not normal children on a TV show. So after this happened, I was just kind of sitting there thinking, are these, you know, enlightened educators ready for Sesame Street? Is the country ready for Sesame Street? Because this is, this seemed pretty, you know, you pretty basic in terms of, you know, empathy, having empathy. And um, where I expected they wanted their country to go in the future. Um, but then, you know, as, as the debate continued, this other woman, uh, you know, raised her hand and said, uh, you know, you, you Americans don't understand that, uh, you know, we have children who are stuck in their beds and they'll never get a wheelchair. And uh, because of the healthcare system and, and the poverty of, of our situation. And if they see other children with a wheelchair on TV, they're just going to be sad. They're going to feel sad. So after I heard that, you know, it was, uh, that was, you know, kind of made me realize we were talking about, they were trying to be responsible. They were really thinking about these issues of inclusivity, but also taking into account the realities of their own situation. So, you know, this this discussion went, went on further where this other woman, you know, raised her hand and said, I speak, uh, I, I work with um, uh, children with disabilities every day in this small town called Chabaksari, which is in a region that stretches, you know, from the Volga to Siberia. And it was used as a dumping ground for hazardous chemicals. So there, it had her her uh, area had the highest rate of deformities uh, among young children. And she explained that these children yearn to play with normal children. That she talks to the group there and says, "Why can't you people see that just because a child has problems with his legs or her legs?" He needs to be treated, or she needs to be treated with success, with with um, with respect, and as a valuable part of society. So 
um, you know, after she finishes speaking, I look around the room and uh, several people have, are crying. And the people who had spoken earlier are kind of shifting uncomfortably in their seats. So, you know, this, this whole experience and, you know, for me, it was, you know, incredibly emotional time. I was, you know, trying not to cry and kind of trying to hide what I was feeling. But through this woman, the group changed their mind and decided collectively that they did want to have children with disabilities on the show and uh, children, you know, in wheelchairs. And this was, you know, a period of hours of through this discussion. So that day was really transformative and showed me a pathway for other discussions and cultural clashes that we had. You know, I, I realized that I didn't need to say anything most of the time. I had to wait. That all of it was there, that the people who envisioned a different kind of Russia were already in the country, living there, and they were discovering their own voices and other people overcoming, as you described, their fear of change in order to accept the possibility that Russia could be different. I think that's a really important point I want to stick on. Uh, you know, for all the cultural differences that exist throughout this process of making the Russian Sesame Street, uh, do you think you also came to certain um, understandings that, you know, despite these cultural differences, we do have um, maybe a shared humanity in a lot of ways that we sometimes have um, wrongly ignored, whether whether we're Russian or or from the U.S. or from any other countries. Yeah, I mean, I I part of that's part of why I wanted to write this book, and I I you know started noticing that every Netflix and Amazon TV series that had Russians in it, the Russians were always thugs, criminals prostitutes, oligarchs. And I just thought, you know, these caricatures do not ring true of any of the people that I worked with for many years. Where are those people in media? If you could, uh, I want to go back to the discussion of music uh, briefly here before we start wrapping up. Uh, maybe what, what was the point where, uh, you know, some of your colleagues in Russia said, hey, maybe maybe we should uh, try something different with the music. Um, maybe using this upbeat tune in a segment is a good idea. I, I think it's kind of interesting, the stories you tell about how uh, some of the people working on this show maybe changed their minds on issues like what music should be played on the show. Well, there was one uh, one experience that, that happened during the um, the auditions with um, the children that we were uh, casting for the show. And um, uh, the chief director had assembled the children and they were all going to audition in a, in a room separate from each other. So they couldn't hear each other what they were singing. And as the, the first uh, little boy um, arrived to sing his, um, you know, to perform his audition, he stood up straight 
and um, his voice uh, dropped a couple of octaves. And then he started singing a song from World War II, which was, uh, you know, about uh, about uh, death, loss, and war. And uh, he sang a song about, you know, the planet is burning, everything's going up in smoke. And and I thought this was a very strange song to select for a children's comedy show. Um, but as I was sitting there, the, the, the next child came in, a little girl with blonde um, uh, pigtails, and she sang another World War II song. Uh, which was called Katusha, about uh, a uh, young man going off to the front. So I thought, wow, this is this is incredible. And um, at lunchtime, I I left with the chief director and I asked him about that. I said, well, what's up with this? You know, I mean, I thought they'd be like singing, you know, Itsy Bitsy Spider or Old MacDonald Had a Farm. And um, and he said, uh, Natasha, you. Um, you shouldn't think of these songs as sad. They're lyrical and poetic. And uh, these are the children that, that the, uh, these are the songs that the children have sung with their grandmothers that give them comfort. So I thought about that, you know, and then, um, you know, he decided, the chief director decided to make a whole, uh, musical motif of some of these um what i called sad songs what he called lyrical songs and um i just you know was like okay fine and he he did this um and and honestly they they weren't very good um and so they were culturally um uh you know re they reflected their own the russian culture but I didn't feel like they really fit in the show. And of course we wanted the show to be really successful. So I talked to the Russian research director about these, these lyrical segments. And she said, well, why don't we test them? Let's test them with children. So she ended up testing the segments with other upbeat segments with about 1200 children. And we, the process was videotaping the children and then uh, noting eyes on screen, you know, recording their their attention level to the TV uh, monitor. And the uh, during this process, uh, when when some of these lyrical uh, segments came up, one little boy picked up a fake pistol and shot the girl with the braids next to him. So we had we had a couple of very unusual things happen during these lyrical segments and we showed the chief director and you know he just he looked at the test results and he just said oh okay uh we won't uh, we won't be having any more of these and at, you know in a face saving um measure I said well we've shot six let's keep the six in that we've done they're fine and we just won't shoot anymore um so that's that's how that was resolved. Just a few more questions. Um, one that I, I really was interested in asking you, I know it's such a basic question, but you know, we've talked a little bit about the triumphs uh, of the show. What 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 for you though was the biggest um maybe tragedies of the show or or 
where did things not end up going right? What were the biggest obstacles you faced? I would say the, the biggest obstacles were, you know, financial, um, violence, and cultural. I would say, I mean, it was a, it was a big, fat triad of obstacles. <laughs> but, you know, the, in terms of the uh, willingness, you know, and, and, ability to keep going i think it was overcoming the the deaths of the people who had been my confidants and guides and you know many of these people were really great uh courageous people trying to change their country for the better you, trying you mean to through some of the, the things that were happening like these car bombings and assassinations and whatnot exactly yeah and also just being close to that but at the same time um, you know, knowing the people and seeing that they could be cut down in a nanosecond, you know, that, that, that was it. Some person that has been doing so much to help the country. And, and it's like, it's like, you know, you, 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 you have faith in these people that can build a different future. And then it's like the heads are being cut off. So I think that was very difficult. Um, and physically it was, it was, it was pretty hard too, especially once I was pregnant and, you know, uh, finding food as a vegetarian, almost impossible. Um, but, you know, you know, the support, our team was so amazing and the, the, the willingness that everybody had to work really hard to we understood what was at stake in terms of um attempting to change you know change this the monolith to a more open society to allow light to come in and um give children opportunity to that they had never had before in spite of all that i, I mean you know, you tell stories of car bombings and assassinations. We mentioned that, but what made you stay in, in light of all that, you know, chaos that was going on? It was absolutely the people. I mean, there was, there was nothing else that, that, you know, you could, it was an emotional, uh, you know, uh, very strong bond with the people I was working with. And also the prospect of what we were doing, that I understood the impact this show could have. There was really nothing else for, uh, you know, children at that time. There was one other children's TV show. That was it. It was a, you know, didactic old show that had been on under Soviet communism for years. What we were doing was so ambitious and so revolutionary, everybody felt this. It wasn't just me. The you know chief director, when I interviewed him in January of 2020, and he questioned, I wonder if it would be possible now to do what we did then. We had built, you know, so such an, an open um team working together, Russians, Ukrainians, Armenians. Georgians, 400 people, all collaborating, you know, without, without any safety net. 
And we were working within the, the Russian TV station, the same one where Putin's now at disseminating his propaganda in favor of his war. And we also had hundreds of independent freelance people working together with us. This had never been done. What we were doing was unprecedented. I was in charge of this. How could I walk away? I mean, we were barely keeping the pieces together at every juncture, which you read about in the book. If I were to walk away, what would happen? So I understood that responsibility and um, I didn't feel it was possible. It felt wrong. I also wanted to ask about uh, one of the key figures in the book is um, someone you describe as a very close friend of over 30 years, uh, Leonid, um, I don't want to miss his name. Yes, Leonid could you talk a little Zagal. bit about him and how he worked on the show with you? He was absolutely indispensable in making this show. And, uh, you know, he he was, we worked uh, absolutely in tandem and he was a, a um, quite well-known uh, investigative journalist for Literaturnea Gazeta, which was a uh, literary and cultural magazine or sort of press in Russia at that time and the Soviet Union. And um, he had uh, been uh, well known for breaking some of the earliest stories about political prisoners held in psychiatric hospitals. That's how I met him because I was working for NBC News and he was brought in uh, to, to help with that story. And from the moment I met him, he made me laugh. And like, we were, we've been friends ever since. Um, so he was, he was, you know, if you, in the, the stories about him in the book are really wonderful and showing uh, everything that he, that he did to move this, uh, you know, ball and chain up the hill, essentially. Uh, just two more things I wanted to briefly touch on. The first is, uh, what was your experience like going back to Russia um, in the process of writing this book? Uh, was there a melancholy to it? Um, maybe you could just describe your feelings on it. Yeah, melancholy is a really good word. I mean, I would I would say I was uh, I was really depressed. You know, I went back there and and started. I was interviewing people on WhatsApp for the book before then. And then in 2020, went back to interview several of them in person. And um, it was just so hard to, to, see, um, to see how they were reacting to the tragedy of their life's work. And, um, you know, especially the chief director who had uh, just turned 80. And, you know, he has grandkids. And, uh, you know, he is just, it was sad. Um, and, you know, everybody, everybody tried to put up a, a good front. They had, they hadn't seen me in person in so many years and, you know, they're very proud people and they should be. Um, but it was, it was really difficult having the conversations that I did and, learning some of the things that I did about their own personal lives. The last thing I wanted to touch upon is, you know, 
speaking as we had about the cultural clashes over this Russian version of Sesame Street, I found it interesting how in the past years, now in our in, in the U.S., uh, I think there's a lot of culture warring, uh, oftentimes over Sesame Street. You know, when when Sesame Street introduces uh, an Asian American character, there will be uh, you know outcry about that. Um, or I remember they were they were doing a whole uh, character that had you know parents with opioid addiction, and they were trying to shed light on that. And I knew some people that said, "Oh, we don't need to be teaching our kids about this. You know, don't they deal with enough?" And to me, I've always been very protective of Sesame Street because I think it's a show that really is meant to reach out to um, all kinds of young kids uh, that may face very real issues, like uh, you know having parents that that are affected by things like the opioid crisis or having having family that are affected by racism. And I think one of the great things about Sesame Street is it tackles those issues and tries to let us know that you know we're we're all part of one big human family. So I'm curious, what do you think about the the way in which um, you know some of the culture clashes we see in, in your book are now sort of happening in the U.S. when it comes to uh, the U.S. Sesame Street? I, I think it's very unfortunate uh, that that people will use Sesame Street to uh, push their you know political agenda or their grievances um, over you know things like. Uh, diversity and inclusion and whatnot it's it's very bizarre to me uh the backlash that sometimes the show gets well the you know the show is uh it's a very different time now than when i was working on the show earlier um but of course you know we have enormous divisions in our own country which parallel divisions that existed in the post-soviet society where we had made sesame street um, that's for sure. I mean, it's, uh, I don't, um, you know, I think there's, it's not just Sesame Street, but you see this in so many aspects in America where people are, you know, unable to accept um, free speech and um, and that we have a diversity of opinions. So I feel that, um, you know, and, and I attribute this a lot to uh, an unregulated internet um, where it's it's very dangerous to to have um, uh, you know these 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 you know the ability to have say whatever you want you know all the time and uh, you know there there has to be some some type of regulation of this if anything, to protect children, you know? So I don't know. It's just, um, you know, it's, it's, it's heartbreaking not only to see what's happening in Russia now, but in our own country with this, you know, incredible divide. Uh, but I do think, I mean, I'm, I'm much more positive about our ability to figure out a solution than I am regarding Russia. We do have free speech, so. In conclusion, what do you hope that listeners get out of the conversation we've been having over the past uh, 40 or so minutes? And what do you hope they get out of the book when they have a chance to read it? Well, I hope that it will give, uh, you know, I, I feel on the, first of all, that it's a great story. And moves super fast 
So, you know, it's entertaining. It's, it's un, yeah, like, that's what I've heard from people like unexpectedly because it is nonfiction. They're like, oh my God, this is like fiction. I'm like, no, it is nonfiction. <laughs> and it's very much about real people who are alive today. Um, you cut out there the for a second. Time, like, um, you you yeah. said that uh, a lot of people uh, are surprised that it's nonfiction. Could you repeat that? Yeah, I said, I said a, a lot of people are surprised that it is, uh, you know, nonfiction because it moves so quickly that it feels like a fiction book, but it's, but it's real people who are alive and this really happened. And so, you know, it's a very entertaining book, but um, I also feel that it gives an, a really deep understanding of Russian culture and uh, the people in a way that many history books don't or foreign policy books don't because you're approaching this society through the prism of the Muppets. And when you are talking to people about their children and what they want for their children in the future, it's very, very emotionally intense. And you're able to go deeper than simply talking about you know, foreign policy or something like that. So you can understand the culture more deeply that way. In in a um, way, looking at it through the lens of Muppets, I, I think there's there's sort of a you can foster more of an empathy. Whereas I think when you're talking about it through a foreign policy lens, maybe it's a little bit drier. I, I think we really see the emotional connections when it comes to looking at it through the story you're telling. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's very true. And also the people that you meet in the book, they're there throughout the entire book. So you really get to know them. They don't go away. It's not like vignettes trying to prove some political point. You are getting to know who these people are, you know. Um, but I think another lesson is also that, you you know, we in the West cannot expect other societies to mirror our own in the same way. I mean, it's just not... It's just not, uh, countries are so different. They have different histories. They have different politics. They have different culture. And so, you know, when we in the West look at other societies, we have to have a certain openness to understanding that they will, you know, approach things differently. And that in a lot of ways, they're not going to, they're not going to necessarily change overnight. Uh, they, they may push that back is- on some things. Yeah. That is a key, key factor, especially, you know, the longer you have an authoritarian government, like in Venezuela, the longer it's going to take to come out of something like that, too. These things do not happen quickly. Well, Natasha Lance Rogoff, I want to thank you again for coming on Parallax Views. Uh, is there any way that my listeners can keep up uh, with the work you're doing? And uh, where would you say they can purchase the book? I'm, I'm assuming they can go to their favorite independent bookseller or you know, if they want, I guess, Amazon, but uh, yeah, they can get it in bookstores. Yeah, then it's available on all formats, audiobook as well, and Kindle, and uh, on um, Audible, Amazon, in your local bookstore. And I can be reached at my website at natashalancerogoff.com. And always happy to hear what people are thinking about the book. And um, thank you so much. Thank you so much for for this talk today. It was really interesting, especially the parts about the the different uh, approaches towards uh, 
capitalism and equality. And I found that conversation very interesting too. And thank you again for coming on the show, Natasha Lance Rogoff. Thank you. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Natasha Lance Rogoff on her new book, Muppets in Moscow, the unexpected crazy true story of making Sesame Street in Russia. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews, where you can get bonus content as well as early editions of upcoming Parallax Views programs. In fact, this program was released last month for Patreon supporters. So there are things afoot on the Patreon page and your support is what makes this show possible. So again, patreon.com slash parallaxviews if you want to help this show keep going. And with that being said, Until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like great. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.